welcome to the first London Aesthetics Forum talk of summer term. And I'm very pleased to welcome Sean Nichols. Before I introduce Sean, I'll just do the usual thing. Thanking the Institute of Philosophy for giving us space and the British Society of Aesthetics for sponsoring the series. Um, Sean Nichols is professor at Cornell University in philosophy and psychology. Are you in psychology? I, I have something there, yeah. yeah. Okay. Mostly <laughs> in philosophy, somewhat in psychology, if that's a possible thing. Yeah. <laughs> Sean is currently the Lieberhume Professor for 2023 at Sheffield University, which explains his proximity and the ease with which we were able to get him to come. He has written on any number of topics, mostly from the point of view of cognitive science, experimental philosophy, thinking through how we arrive at our philosophical concepts from um, a cognitive and psychological point of view, topics like personal identity, free will, um, and recently Buddhism as well. Um, I hear you've been working on, you were working on moral learning, now we're working on private property. Yeah. So it's a never-ending stream of excitement. <laughs> and today, Sean will be talking to us about aesthetic dumbfounding. Thank you, Stacy. Um, thanks for having me give this talk. I am. Stacey asked if I could give a talk in aesthetics, and we had, I have a research project, a big research project, and we had just started working on aesthetics, and so we sort of rushed to get some things done so that I could tell you about it. It's, um, the first part of the talk is set up, the, the work that we did that's the background to the stuff that we've done on aesthetic judgment, and this is with um, Alejandro Vesga, um, as, who's a Cornell graduate student, um, who's moving to University of Houston, Scott Partington, who was an undergrad at Cornell and is now at Cambridge, and then Dave Pizarro, who's a psychologist at um, uh, Cornell. So there's a, um, probably most of you know, but maybe some people in aesthetics don't know this example. Jonathan Haidt has this notorious paper where he argues um, about the nature of moral judgment, um, and he gives people cases in, in this classic study that was actually never published but has been discussed more than any other unpublished paper I know. He gave people vignettes like this. Julie and Mark are brother and sister. They're traveling together in France on summer vacation from college. One night they're staying alone in a cabin near the beach. They decided it would be interesting and fun if they tried making love. At the very least, it would be a new experience for each of them. Julie was already taking birth control pills, but Mark uses a condom too just to be safe. They both enjoy making love but decide not to do it again. They keep that night as a special secret, makes them feel even closer to each other. Um, and then, what do you think about that? Was it okay for Mark and Julie to have to make love? And then, um, and then the way the study worked, maybe this is part of the reason it couldn't be published, was he had a, a, a guy who's an undergraduate philosophy major who um, would ask the question, was it okay for them to make love? And then basically everyone says no, and then he says why? And they'll say, well, because of the risk. And he said, like, there are two forms of birth control. How many do you use? Um, um, and they'll say, well, you know, it's in the Bible. And he would, have, he would know the biblical arguments for why you couldn't make this case. So everything they came with, this is Height's report, everything they came with, his undergraduate, who I recall his name was Scott, um, he, would have a, he would have a retort to it. So that in the end, every reason they marshaled was undercut. And yet, 
at the end, they say, like, I don't know, still not okay. And so Haidt says, and he begins his paper with that, with that case, and he says, eventually many people say something, I don't know, I can't explain it, I just know it's wrong. And then Haidt says, but what model of moral judgment um, allows a person to know that something is wrong without knowing why? And then he, he dubs this phenomenon moral dumbfounding. And the suggestion is, you know, I looked up the definition of dumbfounding in the Cambridge Dictionary, and it's um, so shocked that you're speechless. So it's like people have nothing to say when you ask them why it's wrong, and yet they continue to hold the view that it's wrong for Mark and Julie to have sex. So he says what really goes on in moral judgment is that you just have these sort of gut reactions, these natural intuitions. So you have what he calls in the paper affective intuition. It's not driven by reasoning or careful thought or applying a rule. It's just, um, it's just a feeling that pushes you to say it. And then you come up with post hoc rationalizations. And the way that Haidt presents this in the way that it's been taken is that he, he's saying that people are actually much stupider um, about morality than you might have thought. And again, it's like, they think they have reasons, but when you push them, they don't. And then they're like flummoxed by this, and, and they just say, I don't care. Like, I, I still believe it. Um, and so he has a particular model of moral judgment that's been very influential and much attacked. But um, so the first thing that happens is you have some kind of um, something in the environment or some vignette, and then that causes your intuition, intuition that it's wrong for them to have sex. And that's, that's done by just some kind of like low-level process. Um, and then at the end, you try to justify yourself. And what you think you're doing, according to Hype, you think you're providing reasons that actually ground the intuition, but you're not. It's all like post hoc lawyerly activity. You're trying to justify something that is not based on anything like reasoning. So the dumbfounding account is you make the judgment based on your intuitions, and you are under the misapprehension that you have reasons for it, but you really don't. So, so the dumbfounding story says, when you, when you ask people for moral their moral judgment, they don't give an explanation, but they persist in their belief. And then this is the, the other like, phrase that gets been picked up from Hyde. He says, reason is like the wagging tail of intuition. It's not doing any of the real work, um, you just think it's doing work, but actually it's just the, the intuition that you get from emotions and your sense that your, your moral judgments are based on reason is confabulation. There's another way to think about this though. There's actually been a lot of, um, a lot of people have attacked this in a different direction than we're gonna address. So Peter Railton and Dan Jacobson um, both are actually people are really smart and they really are tracking what matters in the situation and Hype has it wrong. There's a very different way to go though, which is just that you could say, well, maybe moral convictions, and as we'll see, maybe aesthetic convictions, ultimately don't really have or require explanations. It's not that people are so shocked that they're like, oh, I don't, I can't, I can't speak anymore because I don't have any reasons. I thought I had reasons. It's just like in the moral domain and maybe the aesthetic domain, you run out of reasons and that's okay. There's nothing, there's nothing like um, defective about that. That's just how it is. And that's a familiar idea from um, uh, early modern meta-ethics. So 
What Hutchison says, Hutchison was um, one of the key predecessors to Hume on seminalist accounts of moral judgment. He says, um, we approve pursuing the public good, but for what reason, I fancy we can find none in these cases any more than we could give for our liking any pleasant fruit. So he thinks, and Hume does as well, that judgments about right and wrong and good and bad, they're based on emotions, they're not based on they're not based on rationality. And of course, they think the same thing about aesthetics. And as we'll see, the idea, their idea is that we should, we should think of um, moral judgment on analogy with aesthetics, and that's very different from judgments about things like mathematics. Um, okay. So we have been trying to um, investigate how people think about explanations generally. And then what we've done lately is try to apply this to the moral and aesthetic cases. Um, the background for this is there's a bunch of work in psychology, cognitive psychology and developmental psychology on explanatory cognition. Um, and one thing everybody knows is that kids are constantly asking why. Kids are very interested in getting like explanations. Uh, they will, um, if you show them something that has a surprising outcome, they'll be very keen to try to figure out what caused the surprising outcome. There are lots of things they could investigate that are like normal and obvious. They don't care about those. They want to they look for the thing that would explain the surprising outcome. Um, and then one explanation for why we have these, these drives for explanation is that it has this, this great benefit that as we develop explanations, then we are able to make better predictions. So, what Gopnik says in this, um, this very good paper, um, she says, explanation impels us to action. Um, it's the phenomenological mark of the fulfillment of an evolutionarily determined drive. We have this sense of like explanation or looking for an explanation because it's good for us to have explanations. And it's good for us because it makes us better predictors. There has been a lot of work on a lot of it is, I guess the majority of it is done either by Tanya Lombroso or people in her lab, um, at how adults and kids think about explanations. And one thing that she's shown very persuasively is that kid, people, adults and kids both, they are um, good at like seeking out epistemically valuable explanations. And they're good at determining like when you want a simpler explanation, and when a simpler explanation is inadequate because of the, the data. So they'll be like, people want a simple explanation, but you give them a couple of data points, and they'll think, well, no, the, the simple explanation can't work. We need a more complex explanation. And they make these judgments in ways that are actually appropriate. They're statistically appropriate. It's, it's an impressive capacity that people, including pretty young kids, have. A second thing is that people will um, accord non-epistemic values to explanations. So they'll think that, oh, this kind of explanation, like they'll think religious explanations often provide social benefits. So they'll say, you know, it'd be good if everybody believed this, if everybody believed the explanation. So they have, they have both like epistemic values and non-epistemic values associated with explanations. So that's, that's where we started knowing about this background research. And what we wanted to know is, well, in philosophy, we, like philosophers have been interested for a long time, maybe since antiquity, in the idea that you make judgments that the explanations 
have to exist. They have to be there. There has to be an explanation. So do people think that facts have to have an explanation in a way that's independent of whether or not it would do us any good, it's valuable to us, whether it would be predictably useful? Do people just think that facts have to have explanations? And this is, um, uh, I guess, um, exemplified by the principle of sufficient reason, which says that for every fact, um, there has to be an explanation for that fact. And that's, the, that's what we started to look at, was whether people believe something like the principle of sufficient reason. Um, so the principle of sufficient reason says for anything, if it's a fact, then there has to be um, something that explains it. So for any event, that happened, there has to be a reason or explanation why it happened. For anything that exists, there has to be a reason or explanation for why it exists. And so we have now, I don't know, a bunch of studies, um, maybe a dozen studies on this. Um, and I'll tell you a little bit about this, again, to set the background for what we've been doing in moral and aesthetic explanations. So we have, in that first study I'll tell you about, we have two different kinds of measures. Well, I should say, we have one thing, you can just ask people, do you think everything has to have an explanation? People say yes. Um, do you think every, every event has to have an explanation? People say yes. Um, uh, so we wanted to look at it in a more fine-grained way where we give people facts and we say, do you think this fact has to have an explanation? So one way to do it is just this simple thing. Do you think there has to be an explanation or reason for why? For instance, balloons lose helium. So that's just some fact. Um, uh, and then we wanted to make sure that people were making the right discrimination between the idea that there is an explanation and that we could know some explanation. So we have an, a measure that's more explicit where we talk about two characters, for instance, Bert and Rich. Say, um, Bert and Rich are both convinced that balloons lose helium, but they disagreed about whether there has to be an explanation or reason for why balloons lose helium. One guy said it's possible there is no explanation, end of story. And the other guy says, of course there must be an explanation, even if we don't know it. Who do you agree with? Um, so we use these two measures. I'll show you the results in a minute. Um, and what we wanted to do is see if these, these basically track the same thing and see how people responded. And then the, the first set, we'll see we've generalized this in a bunch of ways, but um, the first for our first study, we just took materials from Tanya Lombroso's lab, her student, um, Emily Liquin, had these examples. So we just used these examples and all the other ones that they had. So like, here are the, some candidate facts. Calcium is helpful in treating osteoporosis. Balloons lose helium. Ghosts exist. So we presented um, a bunch of participants with those kinds of facts, and then we would ask them whether there has to be an explanation. But we also wanted to see, there's always a worry when you run studies that um, if, if people say yes to everything, you think, well, maybe this is just the kind of thing where people think, oh, I should say yes. Like, so you just get kind of like a positive bias, a yes bias. So we thought, what's something that maybe people would say no about? But people would say there doesn't have to be an explanation for that. And we thought coincidences provide a good possibility here. So here's an example of a coincidence from our first study. Darwin and Lincoln were born on the same day, February 8, 12, 1809. So then the, the thing you ask is, do you think there has to be an explanation for that, why they were born on the same day? Um, so 
uh, we have, again, those two measures. Do you think there has to be an explanation for why calcium is helpful in treating osteoporosis? People treat the homeless badly. Um, Darwin and Lincoln were born on the same day. Do you think there has to be an explanation for each of these? And they stepped through a super long study. Um, what we find is that massively people think like the science facts, the health facts, the math facts have to have explanations, but the coincidences don't have to have explanations. Um, so um, this was a, um, we did this, we, I don't know, maybe there were 30 kinds of examples in here. And there's, oh, this is, um, so the, the midline is at four. So everything here is above the midline. Every, the people overall think all these things, except for the coincidences, have to have explanations. So that's like the first, first part of what we wanted to do. The second thing was to see whether people would distinguish between um, epistemic evaluations and metaphysical evaluations, that there, there has to be an explanation versus we can know the explanation. So we, we already partly did that by having that case where Bert says that there doesn't have to be an explanation, or there, um, there doesn't have to be an explanation, and, and Ernie says there has to be an explanation even if we don't know it. For this, this other study, we just gave people examples that we thought um, no one's ever going to know, like why ancient people built Stonehenge. So we say, do you think there has to be a reason why ancient people built the monuments at Stonehenge? And also, do you think it's possible for us to know why ancient people built the monuments at Stonehenge? And what we thought was, based on the initial study where people seem to be saying, yeah, there has to be an explanation even if we won't know it, we thought people would be more likely to say there has to be an explanation than that it's possible for us to know it. So we thought we would get discrimination between the, um, for things like Stonehenge, between the metaphysical and the epistemic. We compared it to cases where we didn't think there was that, so like the balloons case, do you think there has to be an explanation why balloons lose helium? Do you think we'll, um, uh, it's possible that we'll never know it? What was that question actually? Um, it's possible for us to know why balloons lose helium. So in all these cases, people are saying the same thing basically for the metaphysical claim. There has to be an explanation for why balloons lose helium, and it's possible for us to know it. So the, the light blue is metaphysic, and, and the, the purple is epistemic. And so our prediction was that for these ones, like um, Amelia Earhart's death, um, the, uh, why the universe exists, why God exists, um, Stonehenge, we thought we'd get spread so that people would make stronger metaphysical judgments than epistemic judgments, more likely to say there has to be an explanation for why the universe exists as compared to it's possible for us to know why, and that's exactly what we found. So you see like people much more strongly agree with the idea that there has to be an explanation for why the universe exists than that it's possible for us to know why the universe exists. So we get some clear divergence between judgments of our ability to know and judgments of the necessity of there being an explanation. And then the, the last distinction that we wanted to make sure we could make was between people making metaphysical judgments about there has to be an explanation versus the value of having an explanation, which is what a lot of Lombroso's work was on. So we, um, we did this, um, uh, we showed people pictures that we found in free image software, free image sites on the web, like this is from, from some free site. We showed them this picture. 
and we would say, either we would give them a token fact, like there must be some reason or explanation why this woman enjoys holding the dog, um, or the type fact, why people enjoy holding dogs. Um, and then we would ask the value question, it would be good for us to know why this woman enjoys holding the dog, or why people enjoy holding dogs. And we had a couple of other questions as well. And what we, what we thought, we designed these in a way that we wanted to show, first of all, the, the, the key result is a little, a little subtle, but the, the first thing is we thought, you might not care very much about whether you know why this woman holds the dog, but you still might think there has to be a reason for it. And that's what we find. So people are much more strongly agree that there has to be a reason why the woman is holding the dog, this is the metaphysical one, than that it would be good to know why the woman is holding the dog. Um, so we're getting some distance there. But there's a, um, for like measurement reasons, it's also useful to be able to compare the difference between the two different kinds of cases. So what you see here is people are actually much less likely to think it's valuable um, to know why that woman enjoys holding the dog. That's just like, who cares why that woman um, enjoys holding the dog? They're more inclined to think that it's valuable to know why people enjoy holding dogs. And then that difference is much bigger than the difference in the, in the metaphysical case. So basically what that shows is that the value judgments are operating on a different factor. There's something else going on with value judgments from the metaphysical judgments. Um, yeah, okay. So those are the basic tests that we've done so far on the standard PSR. And then one, um, one worry that we had was, well, we just took the examples that Lombroso's team had, and I, I love her work. I think her work is really good, but you might think, well, they're, they're cherry-picked. Like, she decided which examples to use, and the whole point of this, the whole point of the PSR is that it's supposed to apply to all facts. So we, um, we randomly selected, first of all, we came up with a list of 7,000 words from some word list Scott found, um, and then we randomly selected uh, from that list, and then we went to the Wikipedia page and selected the first three facts that were like clear facts. Um, uh, and then we used those to go through and say, do you think there has to be an explanation for why um, uh, silver is a soft transition metal? I, we would have used, non, we used non-technical language, but so why silver is a soft metal. Um, there has to be an explanation for that. So we did these kinds of like Wikipedia facts, and there were hundreds of them that we, came, we, we extracted. And then we created a bunch of coincidence items, and they were of the form, um, let's see, I wrote one of them down here. Um, these are all like linguistic ones so that they could be gen regenerated. So the words sort and beak have the same number of letters. So we thought, you know, that's just a total coincidence. There's not gonna be an explanation for that. So then our, what we wanted to know was, um, our prediction was, when it comes to Wikipedia facts, people are going to say, those have to have an explanation. But when it comes to like the word things, those are going to be coincidences, and they don't have to have explanations. And that's what we found massively. So this is, you can just, the, if you just look at the, the scatter of dots here, that says, like for the Wikipedia facts, people are massively saying there has to be an explanation. And for the coincidence ones, they're massively saying there doesn't have to be an explanation. So it looks like this isn't just about the examples Tom Lombroso picked. This is true of like 
Wikipedia facts. And then the last thing that we were worried about, and this is something that we continue are working on, is these studies that I just told you about are all done on US participants in an online sample. Um, so we started to look at this cross-culturally, and um, so far we have um, a data set in from China, and it shows basically the same pattern. So um, there's 300 people on an online um, forum in China. So you see like for the science facts and the math facts and the cosmology, like does there have to be an explanation why the universe exists? Versus the coincidences where they're doing, you're getting the same differential in the, that the US participants show. They're saying the coincidences don't have to have facts. The one difference is in religion, they're sort of at the midpoint, but like most of the participants said they didn't believe any of the religious stuff, so they weren't like included in the sample. So it's a, it's a, um, that measure is harder to evaluate. Okay, and this is the very last thing in the background. We've also looked at it with children, six to nine year old children. This is the supernatural one is again weird because most of the kids didn't believe the supernatural stuff. So only two out of 80 kids said that ghosts exist. And so like you can see that it's like not very informative. The kids too were saying that like the coincidence didn't the coincidences didn't have to have explanations, but like God exists, the universe exists, honeybees lands on flowers, some people are afraid of heights, all those things they thought had to have explanations. So we have like good reason to think that the PSR looks like has some plausibility as a psychological phenomenon. That people people seem to accept something like the PSR. And then in one of our research meetings. Alejandro said, well, what about like norms? What if we tried this with norms? And, uh, and then we just started this whole new project on the PSR and norms. So you can think about, the, so there's previous work I told you about like Tom Lombroso's lab where they're asking about people's value of explanations. And what we're interested in is the explanations for values. So how do people think about the explanations for values? Do they think that there has to be an explanation. So where there are the facts that we've looked at, like balloons lose helium, people treat the homeless badly, um, ghosts exist. But what about, very broadly speaking, normative things like um, people should brush their teeth, people shouldn't murder, and sunsets are beautiful. Um, will those be treated equivalently? Will they also be treated as if they have to have explanations? So the first the first study um, that we did um, compared moral facts, prudential facts, and just regular old facts. So uh, the, the moral cases were something like, we had four of each. People should keep their promises, prudential, people should brush their teeth, factual, people with headaches should feel better after taking ibuprofen. Um, and now, so those are the kinds of materials we used. Now I, can, I need to slow down a little bit to walk through the methods because we thought, well, what we were thinking, I mean, disclosure, we thought probably height is exactly wrong. And when people are thinking about morality, they just think, look, that's it. That's the end. I'm not uncomfortable with the fact that I, I think incest is wrong. I think, it, not me personally, but like they think, I think it's wrong. That's it. I'm done. I'm not worried about it at all. Um, so, but in order to do that, it may be that you have to go through some steps. You may have to think through some steps and say, well, I can explain why I think this is wrong. 
Um, and I can explain why I think that thing I just said is wrong. But at a certain point, you're just going to say, no, that's it. Stop bugging me. It's just wrong. Um, and Hume, this lovely, meth, this lovely passage in Hume, this is from the inquiry, where he says, the ultimate ends of human action never, um, in any case, can be accounted for by reason, but recommend themselves entirely to the sentiments and affections of mankind without any dependence on the intellectual faculties. Ask a man why he uses exercise, he will answer, because he desires to keep his health. If you then inquire why he desires health, you will reply, because sickness is painful. If you push your inquiries farther and desire a reason why he hates pain, it's impossible he can ever get any, give any. This is an ultimate end and is never referred to any other object. So we thought we want to give people a chance to like work through the process of giving explanations. We don't want to just like say, you think there's an explanation for this fact and then be done with what they say at first. We want to like force them to go through the process. So um, the, um, so the design we used was more involved than what we had before. Um, uh, we, all, we, we go through a chain of explanations to see if they will bottom out, basically. Will they arrive at something where they say, look, now that we're here, at, I've gone through a bunch of explanations, that's it. There's no, um, this thing I've ended up at the bottom, there doesn't have to be an explanation for that. Okay, so now I'm gonna go through this, the method. Um, explicitly here. So the first thing we always ask is every study we've done, we do this. Basically, we just say, do you think this thing is true? Because we only want to ask people whether they think there has to be an explanation if it's something they think is true. So to what extent do you agree with this? People should brush their teeth before they go to bed. Um, they make a judgment on a one to seven scale. And then if they say, like one is disagree and seven is agree, if they say anything less than four, they say, I'm not so sure. We're like, all right, next question, you're done. Um, you don't get another chance. Um, so, so if they say less than four, they don't agree that you people should brush their teeth and they're out for that one. They go to the next item. If they give an answer that's greater than four, then we say, all right, you just said you um, agree that people should brush their teeth. Do you think there has to be an explanation or reason for why people should brush their teeth, even if we can't know it? So that should be kind of familiar from what we've done already. Uh, and then, again, if they say, no, there doesn't have to be an explanation, then they're done. They're, they, they're finished with that item. But if they say, yeah, there has to be an explanation, so if they make a judgment that's greater than four, um, uh, then they have to give an explanation. We say, all right, you agree that there has to be an explanation for why people should brush their teeth before going to bed, so what is it? Um, then they either, tell us it, they give us an answer to that question, or they can check, I don't know. Um, there has to be an explanation, but I don't know what it is. Uh, and then if they write an answer here, um, then we loop that back and now they get that explanation up there. We say, all right, you thought there has to be an explanation for why people should brush their teeth before going to bed and that it was this thing. Do you think there has to be an explanation why that thing? Um, uh, yeah. It took a super long time. We paid them like so much money. Um, uh, thanks, Templeton. Um, uh, so, uh, and then we say, uh, you agree that there has to be an explanation for that. What do you think if, the, if they, I'm sorry, I, should, I messed, I went too fast. Um, so they give the explanation for why they thought people should brush their teeth before going to bed or why they thought that was 
um, what the explanation for that was. And then we say, well, do you think there has to be an explanation reason for that thing that you just said, the second explanation you gave? And if they say yes, then we say, all right, now we're back to this. You said there has to be an explanation for that thing you said. What do you think that explanation is? And we go through that four times. Um, uh, and then this is the way that it gets coded. So first of all, there's just like, what do they say? Do they think there has to be an explanation? Um, and then there is like the actual text that they write. And then there's, this, this is the thing that we're especially interested in is when they stop, when they say, all right, I can't provide any more explanations. Do, when they stop, do they say, there has to be an explanation, but I don't know what it is. Um, or do they say, now that I've gone through the series of explanations, I'm, I'm at the bottom, it doesn't have to have an explanation. So that, if they say, I don't have any guesses, um, I know there ha I think there has to be an explanation, but I don't have any guesses, then we say, well, that, that's the PSR consistent, that's principle of sufficient reason. But if they say, no, this thing that I just said, that doesn't have to have an explanation, then that's like a brute fact. They're taking it to be a brute fact. I'm gonna go through this one more time just to make sure, because all the studies I'm gonna tell you about use the same method. Here are the examples we use for this first study. People shouldn't murder, they shouldn't deceive, they should feel guilty, they should keep their promises. And then there are the prudential ones and then the factual ones. So here's an example of one particular subject. Um, so uh, this is study one in the, in the norm stuff. To what extent do you agree with the following statement? People with headaches usually feel better after taking ibuprofen. This person gave a six, that's greater than four, so then they got the, they were told, okay, to what extent do you agree with this? There has to be an explanation for why people usually feel better after taking ibuprofen. This person gave a six, so he got, he said, all right, we were told, what do you think the explanation is? And then this particular guy says, um, uh, uh, oops. oh yeah, I'm sorry, this is it. he says, ibuprofen is an anti-inflammatory. That's his explanation. So then we loop that back and we say, all right, you thought there has to be an explanation for why people with headaches feel better after taking ibuprofen, and that it was ibuprofen is an anti-inflammatory. Um, do you agree that there has to be an explanation for that, why ibuprofen is an anti-inflammatory? Um, and this guy said six, so he had to give an explanation. Um, uh, and then we said, well, what do you think the explanation might be? It stops the body from creating and releasing chemicals that cause inflammation. So now he's on the hook again, and <laughs> we say, all right. Uh, that's what you said. Do you think there has to be an explanation for that? He says, yes, there has to be an explanation, but I don't know what it is. So there he's like, I'm done. I can't give any more explanations, but there has to be one. So the, the alternative possibility is he might have said, no, there doesn't have to be an explanation for why ibuprofen, or why ibuprofen stops the body from creating and releasing chemicals that cause inflammation. He might have said, no, there doesn't have to be an explanation, and then that would have been brute fact. So what we have is a way of trying to see whether people will treat certain kinds of claims as bottoming out more than other kinds of claims. So now I'll run through the studies. Um, let me actually, do people have any questions about the method? Because I know it's a complicated method and it's going to be the basis of all right, so the actual results are pretty clear. So for the moral case, for this first study, if you just look at the first thing people say, you just get to say, 
think there has to be an explanation for why people shouldn't see each other, then people give lower ratings for morality as opposed to the factual claims or the prudential claims. That's just the first rating. What we really care about is that last one, the opt-out one. And there, um, so this is a significant difference, but it's much more pronounced here where you see people are much less likely to say there has to, after they go through the process of giving explanations for the moral one, they're much less likely to say there has to be an explanation for that. Um, so this is like the, <coughs> this is the key result, but, and we have a bunch of results in this format, we'll see. Um, where we find that people are, are much more likely to opt out when it comes to morality and say that's just a brute fact. So what are the, some of the kinds of things they say? They'll say, so these are last explanations before they say, look, that's it. There's no more. I, there aren't any, there's no explanation for this. It's not up to a person to choose whether another person lives or dies. Um, life should be precious. It's horrific to do such a thing. And then they you know, say, well, um, does there have to be an explanation for why it's horrific to do such a thing? And they say no. Or in this particular subject said no. Does there have to be an explanation why life should be precious? No, there doesn't have to be an explanation. Um, so that's the, that's the finding that we got. And then we thought, well, what, what the, what's the explanation for what's happening here? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> uh, and one possibility is... So again, what we're finding is like this big difference between morality and facts <coughs> and prudential stuff. Prudence is being left behind now. Um, uh, so one possibility is that the way people are treating the moral cases is kind of the way Haidt was thinking. They're, they're trying to protect themselves. They're trying to like save their ego. Um, but uh, one way that this idea is put is by this um, nice paper by Christina Bicchieri and Hugo Mercier, that when you get these explicit arguments, so when you say, why is this? Why do you think that? Why do you think that? It might feel threatening. Um, and so um, it's likely, they say, to um, arise when the issue is heavily loaded, as in cases of moral dumbfounding, a listener is likely to feel threatened by the argument and to have an antagonistic, antagonistic relation, reaction to the speaker who's challenging her beliefs and making her look irrational. So that's a sort of characterization of the dumbfounding study. And maybe when we ask people, well, why do you think this? And they say, there's. And they say, well, what? sorry. Does there have to be an explanation for this? And they say, yeah. Does there have to be an explanation for the thing you just said? They say, yeah. And at a certain point, maybe they feel threatened and like, oh, I just, I just believe it. And I don't, I don't want to have to. Um, um, I'm, I feel uncomfortable at the idea that I have to provide a justification. So that's um, asking somebody why, what's the explanation for why this is true? If they can't come up with an answer, then it might invite the possibility that maybe it's wrong, and then they would protect their beliefs by denying that there has to be an explanation. And that's when we thought, well, if, if that explanation for... Um, the moral case, we thought aesthetics might be a nice contrast because people might not feel very threatened. We kind of assume maybe this is false, that people wouldn't feel so threatened about aesthetic cases. And so we started to run studies on aesthetic judgments to see if we would also get this opt-out effect where people were more likely to say there doesn't have to be an explanation um, for aesthetic cases. So here are the aesthetic cases we used in the first study, aesthetic yeah, items. 
Sunsets are beautiful, the clear night sky is magnificent, snow-capped mountains are majestic, and roadkill is grotesque. I'll say that one, then. that didn't work all that well. I, I don't know, it wasn't a good item. <laughs> uh, so the study, again, it's the same technique, so they were told to what extent you, I'm not gonna go through the whole thing, just to remind you. Um, to what extent you agree that sunsets are beautiful, and they'd say, they say yes, we say, do you think there has to be an explanation why sunsets are beautiful? If they say yes, we say, what do you think the explanation is? Um, and then they, they either give the explanation or they say, I don't have any guesses. Um, and what we found was that for the first rating, again, just that first one where we say, do you think there has to be an explanation? We get um, people are significantly lower on that first rating for saying there has to be an explanation for why sunsets are beautiful or um, mountains are majestic as compared to facts. Um, so it was actually slightly lower than even the moral cases. And then, again, what we're really interested in is this opt-out ones. So they have the opportunity to run through some explanations first. And there we get this very clear pattern again where people are much less likely to, are much more likely to say, there doesn't have to be an explanation for this aesthetic justification that I gave, or for this explanation I provided for the aesthetic case. Um, okay, so one um, kind of interim implication here is it seems like the dumbfounding interpretation is much less plausible. People don't seem to be shocked into speechlessness the way the dumbfounding theory suggests. Um, seems instead maybe it's more like what Hutchison said, which is actually you just run out of reasons when it comes to the aesthetics and moral, aesthetic and moral domains, and that's fine. I'm just, that's, I'm just done. That's the end of it. But we don't want to um, jump to that conclusion too quickly, that that's the right interpretation. But let me flag that this is the this is the line that we're interested in exploring. Um, uh, so the dumbfounding story says people are like um, just puzzled and confused by the fact that they can't come up with explanations. The Hutchison story is, no, people might just recognize that in these domains, it's fine if you don't have an explanation. You don't have to have explanations to ground these things. Um, one, one possibility that we thought maybe is relevant is, kind of subjectivism. Um, I'm going to mention this because maybe uh, this turned out to be a little weird for us, but um, so we gave cases like this. Cheesecake is delicious, warm weather's nice, pickled fish isn't tasty, and chocolate ice cream is better than rum raisin ice cream. It's <laughs> And then, so the first ratings, again, we get this, we get the aesthetic effect um, strongly on the first rating. The moral effect, we, we didn't get any difference between moral and taste on the first rating, um, but then when we do the opt-out condition, we do again, so people are, again, taste is higher. People are more likely to say there has to be an explanation for why chocolate ice cream tastes better um, uh, as compared to the moral cases and the um, uh, aesthetic cases. All right, so now that 
That case, the taste case, we think is just, it's a little bit unclear exactly what's going on there. The results aren't as strong. Um, but then we thought, this is a really plausible one. Um, and I guess, I think all of us thought this was going to be the right answer. And it's, it's not the Hutchison answer. Um, it's, look, some kinds of things, moral things and aesthetics, and people just think are basic truths. Um, so, like, they might think that these simple aesthetic claims, like sunsets are beautiful, and moral claims, like murder is wrong, it's just like a mathematical claim, where it's just like, um, it's something that is fundamental in a way that doesn't require explanation. So just like, one equals one. What's the explanation, that there have to be an explanation for why one equals one? We thought, no, like, it's just like, that's a fundamental truth. And the idea that it has to have an explanation is a confusion. We don't think that it has to have an explanation. So we gave people another, we did another study where we gave people, these are some new facts. Um, these are the facts that are being compared to the basic cases. Some people, some parks have trails for walking or berries are often used in jam. And the basic cases are one is equal to one. When a door is closed, it is not open. <laughs> Squares do not have six sides. And sky blue is a shade of blue. Um, and then we ran them through the standard study. You know, do you think it's true that one equals equal to one? Do you think there has to be an explanation for this? And uh, so our prediction was that aesthetic, moral, and basic would all be the same and then facts would be high. People would be high on facts having to have explanation, like you know, um, uh, the, the scientific facts would have to have explanations, but the basic moral and aesthetics would all be the same. But as sometimes happens when you run studies, that is not what we found. People treated basic cases, like one equals one, the same as they treated the fact cases. Um, again, aesthetics and moral were lower. This is just the first rating, but we get the same pattern when we go to the opt-out method where people are saying, um, they bottom out with aesthetic, they say the last thing I said doesn't have to have an explanation, same thing for moral, but they didn't do that for basic. They thought there did have to be an explanation for um, the basic, or they're more likely to think there has to be an explanation for the basic claim, which was very baffling to us. And at first we thought, Maybe what they're doing is they are doing some metalinguistic thing. Because a couple of subjects said things like, well, the meaning of one and the meaning of equals. Um, and we were like, all right, so people are just mis they're reinterpreting the question. Um, but then when we look more at these things, these are the kinds of things that this is much more representative of what people would say. Any number is equal to itself. These are real cases that people said. Any number is equal to itself. There's a law of equality. They're the same number. So it wasn't like they were doing a metalinguistic thing. So then we thought, well, maybe people think that um, it's uh, in some way self-explanatory. Um, this is all super new. And I, I didn't say this at the beginning, but I'm very, like, this is so much a work in progress. I'm very keen to get um, your reactions to this. But in the work on principle of sufficient reason itself, one of the places it's applied is in the case of an argument for the existence of God. And so you're supposed to say there has to be an explanation for why everything exists. And then you say, well, what's that explanation? People say God. And you say, well, what's the explanation for that? Seems like you, you haven't gotten very far. Um, and then the traditional answer in medieval philosophy was God explains itself. Like that's just, there's a self-explanation you get from God. So we, 
we always had that kind of in the background, but then we thought, well, maybe, we haven't done it for God, but we thought maybe that's what's going on in these cases. So we, um, we ran another study. This is, this is a, simpler than the other one, so I'm going to walk you through this. Um, so now we have a self-explanation question. So to what extent do you agree with this statement, sunsets are beautiful? Um, to what extent do you agree that there must be an explanation or reason why sunsets are beautiful, even if we can't know it? And then, if they said there has to be an explanation, so they're thumbs up to PSR, then we say, to what extent do you agree with this? The statement sunsets are beautiful is self-explanatory. That is, the explanation is contained in the statement and no further explanation is required. Um, so, we thought maybe people would treat the basic cases as um, self-explanatory. So this is, just to make sure that this is easier to follow, these are the items that we asked. We reduced it, we just add three for each. So sunsets are beautiful, night sky is magnificent. One is equal to one, triangles have three angles and some facts and moral cases. So the first question is, after they say that they agree with the claim, we say, do you think there has to be an explanation? And here we get, um, Aesthetics, once again, is kind of the winner for us in these first cases. Already out the gate, people are like, there doesn't have to be an explanation for why sunsets are beautiful. Um, uh, but again, what we care more about in these cases is the opt-out case, but we don't ask the opt-out one here. So, but now, the thing that this is really about is, to what extent do you agree with this? Sunsets are beautiful, self-explanatory. Um, uh, so... Will people treat some of these um, kinds of domains different than others? The basic fact, aesthetic, moral. And what we found is that massively people are more likely to say that the basic claims are self-explanatory. So the factual claims, the moral claims, and the aesthetic claims are much less likely to get that kind of a judgment. So um, that, that provides some reason to think that um, Value here is being treated as primitive. It's not the sort of general primitivism that we expected, which was that take any fundamental truth, like one equals one, people will treat that as primitive and not needing an explanation, not having an explanation. That's not what we found. Um, so what we found was that there is this, um, the, the pattern is easiest to see if we say, well, when it comes to basic claims, they treat those as being self-explanatory. Um, uh, and so that's, they're, they're very different than the moral cases or the aesthetic cases. But when it comes to the basic PSR, aesthetic cases and moral cases are really treated very differently from um, the rest of, the, of what we've looked at. Treated very differently from claims about mathematics and claims about scientific facts. Um, so it seems like People think that basic statements have to have an explanation, but the statements are, or the explanation is contained in the statement itself. So that makes the basic response a little less baffling. Um, if people are thinking, oh, there has to be an explanation, but it's somehow already in the statement. Um, uh, so it's not that you run out of reasons when it comes to one equals one. They're not, they're saying you don't run out of reasons because the reasons are transparent in the statement. Um, uh, I'm still not entirely sure how to think about that case. Um, 
But the basic finding, the, the, the fundamental finding that we have that we're interested in is really this, where it seems like aesthetic and moral are treated as different. And now we can come back to like this classic question in history of modern ethics, which is that um, the rationalists maintain, like um, uh, um, Clark, that moral judgment and a mathematical judgment track together, that they both were kind of apprehension of some kind of rational truth, whereas the sentimentalists like um, Hutchison and Hume thought that, no, there's a big disanalogy between math and morality. Math is, or morality, moral judgment is more like aesthetic judgment. And it seems like our results are pointing in the same direction, where mathematical claims are treated as actually requiring explanations, even if they're already present in the statements themselves, whereas the aesthetic claims and the moral claims are treated as not requiring explanations. Um, so Hume and Hutchison reject the um, comparison between morals and mathematics um, and affirm the relation between morals and aesthetics, and that seems to track with what we find. So when Hume says, um, the ultimate ends of human actions can never in any case be accounted for by reason, but recommend themselves entirely to the sentiments and affections of mankind. <coughs> he and Hutchison thought that that was true about moral judgments and aesthetics judgments generally. So when we come to moral and aesthetic judgments on their view, we run out of reasons. We, we, we get to a point where we say, I can't provide any more explanation than what I have because it grounds out in your sentiments. It grounds out somehow in your emotional propensities and not in your reasons. So um, uh, you think about like the, where I started with the height story where he says, yeah, people um, are thinking about morality and they have this sense that um, there's something defective about their judgment because they can't justify it. And that this shows that morality is really very different from the way we normally think of it. The human Hutchison point is that we actually um, are, the way our moral judgment actually works is based on our sentiments. And it might be that when people are confronted with these kinds of tasks where they have to give explanations, they're basically affirming the idea that, yeah, I've run out of reasons and that's just fine. All right, that's it. <laughs>